Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks podcast. I'm your host Ben Kreider and today I am going to be recapping the Thunder's first five games of the season. Three takeaways from each of those individual games but also kind of just the overarching stories that we have picked up through the first week and a half of NBA action in Bricktown. Lots of things have been happening in the NBA landscape. Last time I spoke with you all, the Thunder roster was just getting solidified. Isaiah Joe got thrown into the mix. Very high on Isaiah Joe as a developmental prospect. Obviously, OKC ended up having that open roster space. And picking up a guy like Isaiah Joe really does make sense. uh, Just based off of the fact that he's kind of a combo guard that primarily plays as an isolation scorer. And with someone like Trey Mann already in the mix kind of as that six man you want to find somebody kind of of that same mold when you have ball handlers like SGA and Josh Giddy. Isaiah Joe is a perfect uh, kind of flyer where there's not much of a risk attached at all in picking him up but that's when I kind of last spoke with you all. Joe got to see some action in these last five games as did really everybody else outside of the other injuries notably Chet Holmgren who will be out this year. But just starting it out with their season opener against the Minnesota Timberwolves in Minnesota. I mean, this is an interesting game, obviously, because you have Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns going up against OKC in a front court that doesn't have Chet Holmgren in this game. So the dynamics are already kind of interesting, and it got interesting <laughs> when you saw the starting lineups. Um the way that this offseason kind of panned out, obviously with Chet, you know, being picked up, things got crunched a bit in the front court where you're looking at guys like Poku and Baisley as, you know, players that were locked into the rotation last year and really the last couple years to one of them potentially being on the outside looking in. And JRE was the solid piece as a rookie last year. He gets his minutes. With Holmgren out, everybody kind of eats here. Uh, but the starting lineup did not include Baze or JRE. Poku's playing the five against Rudy Gobert, and Kenrich Williams is at the four spot. So they had a very undersized unit going up against the T-Wolves. And as expected, a lot of play happened around the interior. Rudy Gobert went 10 of 15 in this game. Cat was really silenced, 2 of 10 and 2 of 7 from downtown. Uh, But, I mean, OKC ultimately... Ended up losing this game by a margin of 115 to 108. So, seven point loss in the debut. Not too shabby, especially when SGA is dropping 32 points. 12 of 23 from the field, six rebounds, and five assists to go with it. Giddy picks up his double double with 14 points and 11 rebounds. And Poku even ends up with 11 points and seven boards. And, you know, this was a game where at the tail end of it, OKC had a shot. Poku had some turnovers, had some misses where you should probably be kicking it out to SGA, but I think it's more of a learning moment and you'd rather have that at the beginning of the season than the end of it. Ultimately, I don't think it was a major, major deal, but Mark Dagnall probably pulled him to this side after this season opener there. 
really what I took away from it was just the starting lineup in the first place. OKC just being extremely unique with how they approach things here. I don't think that would have been on anybody's bingo card that Poku would be starting at the center position. Maybe starting over Baisley at the four, but at the five, no way. But that's ultimately what happened here, and this came a little bit short. J-Dub in his debut kind of got spoiled Ended up getting elbowed by Jaden McDaniels. He has not played yet to that point or after that. But right now, he's standing at a perfect 100% in his NBA career. Two of two from the field, including a three-pointer. I mean, he has showed it all. He showed it in Vegas, showed it in Salt Lake City, and he showed it in the preseason. He is a Swiss army knife on the offensive side of the court. So, And really defensively as well, with being 6'6 with a 7'2 wingspan, if you have a dynasty league, might want to swoop him up because he is going to be something for this team moving forward. Paint play was what ran this game though. When you're losing 50 to 32 in that aspect and you're letting them shoot 33 free throws, it's not really going to go your way. So the fact that they stayed within single digits and had the opportunity to not just tie, but take the lead in this game in the closing moments really speaks volumes, at least the way that I view it. And that takes you to game number two against the Denver Nuggets, where yet again, it's just a front court battle where OKC doesn't necessarily have the guys to come in and take them one for one. JRE's the starting five, Poku's at the four. More of a traditional lineup from last season. And this one was also extremely close. 122 to 117, going 0-2 here. But so many great moments. SGA, yet again, 28 points on 11 of 24 shooting. Giddy, 19 points, 12 rebounds, and 6 assists. He goes 8 of 17. And then you had Mike Muscala plug in and drop 18 points in 18 minutes. He's a microwave. And I said this on Twitter. I said this last year, but... Muscala is one of the most valuable players in a Thunder uniform. And does he hold value as a trade piece? Sure. I'm sure the Lakers would love to package some trade to acquire Mike Muscala and Kenrich Williams because it genuinely helped them in a lot of areas. I think Mike in particular, being a stretch five, that's something the Lakers would need. And any playoff team would need that. But they are both content in OKC. They're ecstatic, really, to be in OKC. And for what the Thunder need moving forward, Muscala is that. You know, if he's 24, 25, he's clearly part of this blueprint because they have to stretch the floor out. When you run an offense that is really reliant on high ball screens, isolations at the top of the key, and just dribble drives, you can't have front courts that cannot shoot the basketball. That is what has kind of been the... Big problem in the room the last two years where maybe they don't have the best shooters in the front court. They don't have the best shooters point blank off the catch. And it leads to some box and one defenses, some disadvantageous situations. Uh, But you do have one guy through it all that has been the constant. And that is Mike Muscala. They played him sparingly. And I don't know if you'd really call it intentional. There's a lot of guys they want to feed through this room. There's a lot of potential on the table. But anytime he comes in, he is just efficient. That's really all that comes comes down to it, right? Like he plugs in, he can shoot 
on pick and pop situations, even on the roll. He's not, you know, this slow, slow guy. Like he can make things happen really from all three levels uh, on the offensive front and defensively. He does a really good job as well. You know, there's not too many holes in his game. And as a backup, you're, (laughs) you're finding a really good backup in Mike Muscala, actually four of seven from distance, six of 10 overall. You just need to find him off those screens. And even in, you know, transition situation or crossing that timeline, Mike Muscala is one of the scariest bigs in the NBA. And I'm being dead serious when I say that. The art of being a trailer is so underappreciated in the league. If you're a front court figure and you can hide in the shadows of what looks to be a transition play, you're golden because someone like SGA, someone like Giddy or Trey Mann can just kick it back out to you. He does a really good job at kind of almost hiding behind the ball handler to get that pass and he has a wide open three this is someone who's shooting 44 percent from distance last year he is okc's best option from that range so to find him is big and as i said kind of going back to what this team needs and what he emulates he emulates what the thunder are really looking for in terms of when they're pushing in for the playoffs they want to have shooters off the catch and they have one with muscala like i said could not get the job done here though end up losing this game by five points and you're looking at nikola Jokic as one of the big factors 19 points 16 rebounds and 13 assists they tried throwing poku on him didn't really work out too well he only played 12 minutes in this game so they had to shuffle the deck just a little bit. Big part of this just comes down to three-point shooting. OKC, they shot 40% from distance in this second game. That keeps you in games. When you have the option to kick it out or slash inside, I mean, that's more options than what some teams are playing for. You know, they'll play the drive, they'll leave shots open, and they'll play with the result. They're playing with fire this game. The Nuggets were. And had they shot 30% from distance, the Nuggets would have been fine. But when you have all three levels available off those slashes, that's when things can get dangerous for other teams, and you can put these playoff teams on the hot seat. Continuing along with OKC's first five games, we've talked about the first two games going up against the T-Wolves, and then the Nuggets, they go ahead and play the T-Wolves again in their home opener. And they walk into this one a little bit undermanned. No shade Gilgis Alexander in this game. Averaging 30 points across the previous two. So you're left with a backcourt lineup of Trey Mann and Josh Giddy. Trey Mann looked amazing in game number two. Josh Giddy had a double-double in the season debut. And he looked fairly solid. So, I mean, that's not terrible. The big thing that you need to look at, though, is the battle that you saw in that first matchup against the T-Wolves, where Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns were basically eating their lunch. In particular, Rudy Gobert around the basket was unstoppable. Alexei Pokashevsky could not guard him. The wide array of frontcourt figures they tried throwing on, Gobert just did not work either on the glass or inside when he was looking to find his shot around there as well. So they kind of went for a more traditional starting lineup from what you would have saw last year Josh Giddy, Trey Mann, Lou Dort and then you have Kenrich Williams and JRE rounding it out the five spots so that makes a little bit more sense Poku's coming off the bench Darius Baisley not cracking that starting lineup and you get into play and this is one where 
you, you actually had a pretty solid chance uh, if you're in Oklahoma City's camp. They lose this one 116 to 106. But when you delve into the details of this, they were able to stay in this game shooting terribly from the floor. They shot 9 of 41 from downtown. And typically, if they are not shooting well from three, they're going to attack the basket and try to find some fouls. They only shot 21 free throws. Minnesota shot 22, and then they shot 30% from distance. So this was a game that really had to be played from the interior. And when you're looking at OKC's camp, they just don't have necessarily those types of players. Carl Anthony Towns, he played around the basket in game three. Game number one of the season, he was all from distance, and that really didn't work out for him. Gobert went 7 of 9 in this game, and Anthony Edwards erupted for 30 points. OKC on the flip side, though, they got one really good contributor in Lou Dort dropping his first 20-piece of the year, and then you go down to just the legion of guys in double figures. JRE, 15 points going 5 of 6 from the field. You need to have your starting 5 be able to stretch the floor out. That's exactly what he did in this game, and that's why they had a chance. Trey Mann gets 10 points, Josh Giddy gets 10 points, but Eugene Omaruyi was the guy against the T-Wolves, and he looked very impressive during the preseason. <laughs> you know, he's kind of under the radar because he wasn't, you know, with OKC for the longest of times, right? Like Lindy Waters, for example, he's on a two, two-year two-way contract. You knew that he was going to be on this roster coming into this season. Eugene Omaruyi was kind of a, a surprise signing, and he was good last season. He was on a two-way deal with the Dallas Mavericks, really good player for the Oregon Ducks back in college, but he got hurt with the Mavericks, was basically ruled out for the entirety of the season, and because of that, they wanted to open up that two-way deal, and he was kind of sent home a little bit early. OKC picks back up on that, and they might have found another gym through the Mavericks and Texas Legends system. Fun fact about how that pipeline works, and there always seems to be pipelines in the G League. It's very uh, intriguing to me, but Jalen Horde and Moses Brown were both players that initially were with the Texas Legends and the Dallas Mavericks, and... OKC going into the G League bubble took both of them. Moses Brown turned into a standard contract guy. He even played for the Mavericks. <laughs> um, and Jalen Horde, you know, he's grown into a player where he's actually playing pretty damn well. Um, and now he's playing overseas in the Israeli, uh, Israeli Premier League. And that is a pretty good league uh, when you're ranking things out. You know, I'd probably have to list it off the top of my head. I think that's a top six or seventh league in the world, um, and he's very, very talented. But anyways, that's kind of how that all worked, and they might have found their guy with Eugene. He's not going to wow you in terms of athletic ability. In terms of measurables, he's exactly what the Thunder have been craving. They signed Melvin Frazier Jr. to the OKC Blue for the 2020-21 to bubble season, and then he returned last year. 6'6", 7'2", wingspan. J-Dub. Six foot six, seven foot two wingspan. Yuji Nomaruyi, exactly the same. And you can move it down to six five if you want. The seven two wingspan stands. This is a very lengthy uh, prospect to play the two or the three. He's twenty five, so it's not like he's this young young player. 
but he looks like a seasoned vet playing out there. He looks the part of a 25-year-old that isn't in his second NBA season. He's in his fifth NBA season or sixth NBA season. He has jumped right in and has made an impact. The big thing with this Thunder squad that has stuck out is just the intensity. If they're going to win a basketball game, it's through the hustle stats. Eugene is getting in there on deflections. On the offensive end, he's looking to attack the basket. I ended up going to one of the preseason games. It was against Adelaide, so you need to take it with a grain of salt. Eugene was just slashing inside, really getting whatever that that he pleased. And that has translated over. He goes really, really nicely with this current core. And he went 5 of 7 in 12 minutes here to pick up 13 points and 3 rebounds. So I was really, really happy with that. On the other front of new guys coming in, Usman Jang got to play 24 minutes in this one. That's one where you have seen him kind of increase his minutes, uh, but full display didn't really come till game three for him. So I thoroughly enjoyed that one. I think that kind of showed you some of the uh, seeds of what this team could be in terms of some bench players. Uh, but the main thing is you need to have either SGA attacking the basket, getting to the line, or you need three-point play. They didn't have either of those, and that's not going to give you very good odds going up against a team like Minnesota. Baseball's set to round things out, though. LA Clippers, you got them two days, or two games and three nights, excuse me. And OKC did not have the greatest of games if you're looking at the overall box score, but they ultimately came out with the win. 108-94 was the final score, and you look at this as a 14-point game, just a commanding victory for the Thunder. They shot 4 of 30 from downtown, 13.3%. That's not going to win you very many basketball games, so they had to find it another way. They got to a foul line, went 20 of 25 there. On the other side, LA went 14 of 18, so you're picking up 6 points in that column, But how about just attacking off of penetrations? No Josh Giddey in this game, no problem for OKC. SGA picks up 33 points and 8 assists, 11 of 22 from the floor, 2 of 2 from distance. Take those out of the picture, 9 of 19 on twos. For Trey Mann, he played 36 minutes in this start, 25 points going 10 of 24 if you take his three-point attempts out of the picture, that's 8 of 16 on twos. This team runs off of the drives, and they have mastered it. Trey Mann, one of those players where he can pop off. You look at comparisons, Anthony Simons for the Trailblazers might be someone you're looking at. Simons has been just going insane with the Trailblazers as of late, but just that type of player who... He can play off the catch with someone such as Dame, but if he needs to in his own right score, he can flat out score. Trey Mann is asserting himself, and this was the best game uh, from the first four uh, where you actually got to see him kind of control things um, on his own timetable. So I thought that was really great. Another thing, though, was Aaron Wiggins getting minutes. OKC is just changing the starting front court like nobody's business. You start out with Poku playing the five. That didn't work out. You move to JRE playing alongside Poku. Didn't necessarily work out. Kenrich Williams with JRE. Now you're plugging in Aaron Wiggins with JRE. Wiggins drops 11 points and 10 rebounds. 
He was tied for the most rebounds from the Thunder squad. Muscala, 8 points and 10 rebounds in 18 minutes, by the way. That is insane. But Wiggins, showing yet again that he's consistent. I think when you're breaking down this Thunder team, and we'll need to see how some players shake out, but last year... If you are going to assess players with their ceilings and their floors, Aaron Wiggins has a really high floor from a game-to-game basis. I'd say a higher one than guys such as Alexei Pokashevsky or Darius Baisley because even if he isn't able to necessarily shoot from three, he has a pretty solid mid-range game, uh, so he can lean on that a little bit. But defensively, he's going to help out there. I think that there's going to at least be that constant, uh, which sets that bar I'd say higher than some of the other options, but he had a really impressive double-double game, uh, and defensively, I mean, he was just helping out. One thing that is going to be, you know, just maybe a a normal this season, and it has been, is having some of these centers just get double-doubles like crazy, 13, 14 rebounds, and it's not something you're going to bat an eye to. Zubach finished with 14 boards in this game, but it was basically crickets for everybody else. The next one was Terrence Mann with 9. You'll give that to someone who's playing at the small forward position. The big thing, though, was limiting the top options. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George were not in this game, so that makes players such as Reggie Jackson, Norman Powell, and John Wall the guys. Jackson, 4 of 17. Norman Powell, 3 of 10. John Wall, 4 of 9. Just nothing was going on for them. And OKC was able to capitalize off of it. So, in terms of trading hits, OKC had options between SGA and Trey. The Clippers didn't have that number one guy really this entire game. Their leaning score was Luke Kennard with 15, just to put it in perspective. So that's what kind of drove this. But this was their most complete game to that point. This is really where you got to see some of the upside playing someone like Trey Mann in the starting lineup. Is he a six-man when everybody's healthy? Sure. I think that's how it works. But if you want to optimize the offense, then him being a starter actually makes sense in terms of shot production, shot creation, and finding players that can work off the catch with SGA. Because even though there are clear upsides to starting Dort or starting Josh Giddy, they don't bring that same presence from downtown, and they don't bring that same presence as a creator, at least from all three levels. Obviously, Giddy's able to make things happen from anywhere. Lou Dort is just a low-maintenance beast on both sides, so you can't go wrong Uh, But you do have that added dynamic, and this is really the game where you got to see that in full effect, getting 36 minutes in for Trey Mann. Second game of the baseball set, you end up getting about the same result. No Josh Giddy coming in for this one, so it's still Trey Mann and SGA in that backcourt. Aaron Wiggins stays as that starting four, and they played insanely well yet again. This was one where you had both sides playing fairly well. OKC, though, they had the most complete game they've had uh, to this point in their last game against the Clippers. 118-110 to was your final score. OKC shot 17 of 38 from distance, so 45%. And then they end up just going around inside, getting whatever they need. SGA... 24, 5, and 6 is his stat line. Trey Mann ends up with 14 points in his own right. They didn't even need to touch the free throw line. They went 7 of 8 from the line. On the flip side, the Clippers went 13 of 18. But 
if you don't have to lean on free throws and you can lean on threes, you lean on the threes any day of the week. If the Clippers are trying to apply pressure around the interior, which they're trying to do, every team's trying to do this with OKC, you have to kick it outside. You have to find other players who can contribute. Trey Mann, 4 of 7 from distance. Aaron Wiggins, 3 of 6 from distance. And Poku, 3 of 5 from downtown. He basically iced this game. He had 15 points and 6 rebounds across 26 minutes. Playing off the bench, just one of those things uh, where no matter what position you put him in, it's going to be either insanely good or there's going to be a lot of holes you can take away from the game. This is one where you didn't see a lot of holes and there's just something about Poku playing against the Clippers. Started out in his rookie season. I mean, he swayed some ping pong balls, went from probably the number two pick to number six in Josh Giddy. The way the team looks, you're good with how that ultimately rattled but he has something with the Clippers that is um 100% certain for SGA you can try to make a rivalry out of it I don't I don't think it exists um you could have maybe said that like right after the PG trade but it's just a normal game for him putting up normal all-star-esque numbers with his 24 points and Kenrich Williams getting relegated to the bench really did not phase him whatsoever he had 12 points going five of eight from the field. So that was just an overall impressive game. And then to top it all off, Lou Dort was not a great player from downtown, but because you have options off these drives and you have so many different shooters in this game, he was able to sneak inside, pick up eight two-pointers, and get himself 21 points and four assists in his starting gig so two and three through the first five games both wins coming up with the LA Clippers I got three big takeaways from this this team is it not a joke like even with injuries they can still stand a chance against a lot of different opponents doesn't matter if you're walking in there as a playoff contender doesn't matter if you're someone going for lottery balls they can get you sleeping you know if, if you're going in there expecting an easy game it's not going to be that way because you have SGA all-star caliber point guard who's able to make a lot happen in isolation on his own but he's also able to create for teammates there's a lot of different sacrifices that teams will make with slashers such as John Morant or SGA they're going to pack that paint they're going to make you shoot the basketball Memphis has a lot of those decorated shooters and that's what they drafted when they got David Roddy, they got Jake LaRavia, they looked at players that could shoot the ball. Even Vince Williams, who they picked in the second round, he is a lights-out shooter. I think he was a total steal, especially on a two-way contract for them. So they're kind of filling that archetype right now. OKC has not tapped into that yet, but you see how successful that model is for the Memphis Grizzlies. The Thunder have the big part of that with SGA. So SGA, even if you don't have great shooters surrounding him, is able to drop 28 points just driving inside or getting to the foul line. You add in that extra chance of them hitting 35% of their threes, that's going to give you a really good offensive game. And defensively, they're scrappy enough to where they are going to make it a challenge. The biggest thing comes on the glass. It's really going to plague them until they get Chet Holmgren back or they find a center to fill in. As of right now, I think they're just going to let it ride with the 15 that they currently have. So rebounding is the big deal. Making sure the front court game is 
you know, good defensively uh, is what games can shake up to. But with a strong game through SGA and through some, you know, kickouts, they have a good chance to stun some teams. And even with guys like Trey Mann and Mike Muscala, there are some constants that can end up hitting those three-point shots if maybe some others are not producing at the highest of levels. The three ball is going to stay that story, though. I mean, they do not have necessarily those solidified guys outside of Mann and Muscala. And you can make the case for a lot of different players. You know, JRE has been a very solid three-point shooter. Aaron Wiggins, a very solid three-point shooter. Lou Dort just shot up the charts last year. And he's still a good three-point shooter. But do they have elite ones? Not necessarily right now. And three-point players have insane value in this game. They're going to definitely pick some up as this team progresses. But as I kind of aforementioned, like they are not at that stage. They're trying to pan out some more diamonds. And they're trying to you know, continue building up this young roster. Potentially bring on a high lottery pick and then run it back when they do have Chet Holmgren and they can really lay out and implement the foundation that uh, was kind of constructed going into summer league and going in uh, after draft night commenced. There's still going to be guys that will be very productive. Lindy Waters III was brought on a two-way deal because he was a three-point shooter. Last year, He filled in for Paul Watson Jr. He was brought in for three-point shooting purposes. Trey Mann, three-point shooting purposes. He can do it on the dribble. He can do it off the catch. And how about J-Dub? He looks spectacular in Summer League from downtown. At Santa Clara, he was able to get it done from distance. I'm certain he's going to be able to do it uh, when he returns to the lineup. And that's another real weapon. So you do have some building blocks here it's just about kind of crafting it all together uh, and having that finished product kind of all said and done teams are going to play box in one you saw it to close out last year i think that's going to be you know just something that isn't everybody's game plan when you're playing a guy who is so lethal slashing inside and you're playing a team that ranks top 10 uh, when you're looking at drives and you have the number one guy in SGA in that category for the last two years, and now going on three potentially if things stay part of the course here. They're accustomed to this stuff, and they're game planning uh, around these type of defenses, but you do need to look at the three ball as one of those primary deals. Um, But, you know, I, I think that it's still a plus when you have such an elite type of score in SGA, and even someone like Trey Mann as well, uh, not to mention the type of playmakers that have been brought on in the last two years with this squad. It's just a scrappy team, though, and I think that's what makes games difficult. Blowing these guys out of the water probably won't be in the equation for as many games as they had maybe previously. You know, there's going to be a lot more single-digit games, a lot more games where it's going to come down to those, you know, six-point runs. And deals like that. But when you have Lou Dort, J-Dub, Jalen Williams, who is still getting charges at the NBA level, Kenny Hustle, and I think Eugene Omarui uh, can be grouped in here, Aaron Wiggins too. Like these are players, and I'd say that 
Uh, Lou Dort is kind of solidified as that starter, but the others, you know, they're more of like bench pieces right now. When you have a bench that is just hungry to cause havoc, that's going to, you know, permeate throughout your roster to where your starters are also feeling that. And and that's going to lead to some ill effects for your opposition. So it all works uh, out pretty well just with how this team is constructed. It's been very obvious that OKC kind of panders towards specific archetypes. That's how they utilize the G League system, and that's how they've utilized some of their draft picks as well uh, in accordance to you know some of those types of deals. So they have a team that ranks top 10 in deflections. They were first in charges drawn uh, going into their matchup against the Dallas Mavericks. And in terms of contested shots, they're contesting over 56% of shots. That's also top 10. They are working on that defensive side, and if they're able to, you know, lock things up, you might be able to get some more games where you're not shooting 30% from distance, but you're still able to come out with the victory. So they're not uh, this big tanking team, you know, they're going to be competing, uh, and it's going to make for a very fun game against the Dallas Mavericks going into Saturday. So I'll be giving you guys coverage on that one. If you guys have any questions on players on this team, any questions just in general, make sure to let me know. You guys can hit me up on my Twitter or the pod's Twitter at ThunderSticksPod. Other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.